Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulus Affiliate Deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. So today, it's becoming more and more of a thing that we have Deacon Mark Aislin with us. He is a Paulus Deacon Affiliate. He's been on before. He's told us who he is, so I don't know if it's necessary for us to go through his background again. But you've got four people on today. So hello, Mark. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Tom. Well, hello, everyone. Yes. Good to see you, Mark. Good to see you all. Yeah. And is everybody doing okay? Everything going on well in your parishes and your lives? Everybody feel good about life? I guess that's a, that's, a yes. This is dark, dead silence. I don't know. I, mean, I think that's. I think you need to call someone's name, maybe. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, you had thought you had enticed me because I thought we were to do this today because I thought we were be doing this entirely in song. Is that not the case? After? No, we I was going to be like pop rock or something. We were well. We were going to chant. We were going to chant, <laughs> and, oh, and then after having been tested by the Paulist fathers, somebody waved that off, and we won't be chanting. So uh, it's unfortunate. So um, fortunate for our listeners, though. <laughs> is that the truth? So, uh, all right. This is a podcast about reaching people on the margins and how we should do that and how we are called to do that. And we always ask the question, what do we say to the people standing in the door of the church, metaphorically, that is, who are thinking about either leaving or coming in? Today, we're going to try to focus on that a little bit ourselves. In the context of the fact that we always hear about the decline of the church, both in numbers of people attending Mass and in influence, quite frankly, in the world. People say, who is a leader other than Pope Francis? Who is a real leader of people in this world? And we can see that ourselves if we simply go to Mass and see how empty the pews are compared to 50 or 40 or, in my experience, even 30 years ago. We know it's been a topic of conversation ever since Vatican II, when they put the priest on the other side of the altar, facing the people, and allowed the masses to be celebrated in English or the vernacular tongue of the region. While Pope John and Vatican II fathers wanted to open the windows of the church and let in some fresh air, others were sure we were on the road to perdition, or to hell in a handbasket, as my mother used to say. Of course, I disagree with that. But there are various studies, and like I said, we have our own anecdotal observational evidence that the decline is real as far as the seats in the pews. And these studies sometimes tell us how many people have left, and sometimes they try to explain why people are leaving. And while we're not social scientists or pollsters, and we're not even poets, priests, or politicians, that's a line from Sting, and I think he stole it from somebody else, we are deacons. And we have served in parishes and other ministries and have combi- have a combined experience of over 70 years with the church. At least 60 of that is Deacon Dennis. We do not have... No comment, okay. God we will do- get you. I don't have, I have a comment. God will it get didn't you for that. fall for it, no? We do, not have, we do not have all the answers. Perhaps Deacon Tom does, but he refuses to share them. But yeah, we have it's going to cost you. <laughs> it's going to cost. We have some observations, though, and some responses to this dilemma, and we'd like to share them with you. 
But before we actually get into any dry statistics, and honestly, we're going to try not to get into any dry statistics. Nobody wants to hear that. We all know them anyway. Thank you for saying that. I thought we were going to lose the audience right there. I was about ready to turn my mic off with the rest of them. No, we're not going to go down that path. We are not going to put you to sleep with statistics. (laughs) We may put you to sleep, but not with statistics. We're going to start with a story. Deacon Mark, tell us about something that happened to you recently. Yeah, we talk about this podcast as part of a, an extension of our ministry, the Paulist ministry of reaching out to those who are on the threshold. And I had an experience recently that, that very much addresses that particular issue in a way that kind of caught me unawares. I had an opportunity to preach one day, and, and as we often do in our homes, we, we try to be encouraging and center ourselves, center ourselves as a community together in worship and in love for one another in Christ, right? And so I happened to be talking that day about how we, we stay in the church despite all of the problems that the church has faced over the last several years, because ultimately it's about our relationship with Christ and our relationship with one another in Christ. And it happened to be that I encountered someone after Mass, a woman who wanted to talk about that. And she told me that what I had said that particular day was one of the reasons for the driving force for her staying. But she felt very much like she was at a decision point on that threshold that we're talking about all the time, where she could very easily just walk away. And this is not someone who is a sometime churchgoer. This is, a, this is someone who is engaged. And, and yet she expressed this feeling of isolation. She told me, and this is what kind of bowled me over. She said, I don't feel seen. I don't feel seen as a young woman, an unmarried woman in the church. And of course, I immediately thought of our discussion some weeks ago with Dr. Koblenz about depression, right? And she brought up that story of Hagar and how Hagar talks about the God who sees me. And that's come back a few times I happened to mention that in an earlier homily, and I've heard that from women several times now about how powerful that the God who sees me is for them because they, in, in another case, a woman told me about how she works with young people in dramatic productions and in dealing with teenage girls in particular, that whole idea of being seen is so important to them. Right. Being invisible is one of those crises of teenage life. And so in this particular case, with this woman talking to me about not being seen, all of that came to a head. And as I said, I was caught a bit unawares about how to address this because it wasn't what I expected from someone who is a regular churchgoer. And yet I felt her struggle in a really profound way. And so I must admit, I, so I spent most of that time just listening and I kind of feebly responded with, well, the church, I think, is beginning to recognize women 
in a different way now. Women are going to be or are going to have the vote in the next Senate. And it sounded like a really pretty weak response. But then I think I, I just felt that it was important to listen to her. And so she talked for a while. And, and then I felt like we didn't really leave it on, in a great place. But I just said, I hope she stays because she's part of our community. And I think community is one of those things that really bind us together and keep us worshiping in Christ. But I left that unsettled, that particular encounter, un- feeling unsettled. And how really profound a moment that was in listening to someone. And I think you could apply the same issue to any group that feels marginalized in their feeling about how maybe the church addresses their particular issue, how others in the church may feel that they are putting you in a box or or even criticizing or condemning even your particular state and life or ideas. So I'd be interested to to hear what you have to say about that and what maybe you might, how you might have addressed it and how that might apply to others, because I don't think she was alone. I agree, and I bet she's not alone. And the issue is, I think, to solve that problem, we would all have to see these people who feel unseen before they have to tell us that they feel unseen. But to answer your first question, is I think you asked us, how would we have responded? I don't think I would have responded much differently, if differently at all. Listening, of course. I mean, you listened, and then you told her, I hope you stay. And, uh, you know, you gave her that encouragement. And maybe for a first step, all you can do. I don't think we can be expected to solve that problem, or that you could be expected to solve that problem. But I bet, and I hope, based on the way you're telling the story, that when she walked away, you, you felt unsettled, you said. And I'm not suggesting she would have felt settled. But I'm hoping that she felt maybe a little seen now. I don't know. Yes, I hope that was at least that she felt in that instance there was someone who was listening to her. And as you say, that there was someone seeing her. You know, I I had a similar experience at work a long time ago, almost 30 years ago at this point. And it was not a religious experience. It was that I had really just kept, I had two different people reporting to me and I kept going to one rather than the other. And then the other went to someone who was my peer and said, he doesn't see me. He doesn't know I'm here. And it was like a slap in my face because it just wasn't true. And I had to modify my behavior. And I think it's important for us all to know that when somebody does not feel seen, it's not their problem. It's ours. We're not seeing them. (laughs) You don't just not feel seen because you don't want to feel seen. Thanks, Mark. That's a powerful well, I think, story. I think that the big part that you bring to that when we're engaged or you or any of us are engaged is exactly that listening aspect. Because certainly there's no fix that we could do. It's beyond us. It's a systemic problem, really. And the failure of our culture today, our people, we don't listen. We live in a world that's a cacophony of noise and nobody's listening. Which just adds to the problem. And uh, yeah, the deep sensitivities that have, have when you, you feel in, invisible are a real hurt, a real pain that make you 
move, like you say, on outside outside the door. I'm not even recognized here in a place that's supposed to be welcoming and accepting. Yeah, I think Mark did as well as he as you can reasonably expect, standing where he was in a non-private situation, having someone bring up this kind of deep issue, and listening certainly is the correct response. But my experience is I have often, when I haven't listened especially, or even if I listened, I think I know what you're saying, and I found out later I don't. Like you were talking about the thing about bringing up the synod. I mean, that might work. If her, I, if what she meant by being not seen was the structures of the church, that might, oh yeah, really? Okay, that might have helped her. But the only thing I would have done is I would differently is I would have said, well, let's talk about this. This would have been pastoral counseling. I would I wouldn't have let her leave without her contact information. And I would call her and say, okay, when can we get together? And I would sit down and my main thing would be, and because this is where I always make my mistakes in the past, is what is this person actually trying to tell me? Because people are inarticulate. People say things that I jump, oh, yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, that's even though that's what they said, that's not what they meant. And so I would pastoral counseling and really unpack who's not seeing you. You're talking about me? You're talking about Father? The Pope? I mean, what? are there not enough programs in this parish for single lay women? What does seen mean in this context? And who's... Who do you want to see? You know, I would just try to get at the bottom of all that before you do anything with it. Because until you understand what they're really saying, you know, you, I, I often make mistakes because through my lens, I assume, oh, you mean this or you mean, and it's like, yeah, no, I don't mean that. And they don't, and a lot of times they don't even give you the feedback that, no, I didn't mean that. They just go away and they're like, yeah, that didn't help. And it's like, well, it's almost like you got to pull it out of them and make sure you understand what what the question is or what's gnawing at them. So I would think that the pastoral counseling, the other thing, standing on one foot in a crowd, I would have really made sure with anybody that, you know, you, you will be missed. Don't ever think that you're disappearing. Will the building fall down the next weekend? No, it won't fall down if I leave and I'm up on the altar. But you will be missed. And people will say, where's so-and-so? And the story I often tell about that is the number of people that I know that have committed suicide thinking I won't be missed. And I'm the guy who has to orchestrate the tragedy with the grieving parents, the grieving friends, and why did he do it? And I'm just thinking, you won't be missed? Look at this. So we're all missed. You gotta, But again, what are, you, what are you talking about? So anyways, unpack it is what I would say is the only other thing you can do because this is not a quick how many commandments are there again, Deacon? And you say 10, and, you know, that's it. This is a sit-down conversation. I think, or at least I hope, that I did convey that, that sense of we'll miss you, right? I, as I, I was listening to you speak, I was thinking about that documentary with the Pope recently, The Pope Answers, which I thought was misnamed. It should be The Pope Listens, because I think one of the things that what really struck me about that, I, I don't know how many of you have seen it, but was a group of young people with very different stories. One young man who had been abused by a priest, a woman who 
advocates for abortion. Another woman who is very traditionally Catholic, another a young woman who actually produces porn videos in her apartment, right? Very striking life stories and all sitting with the Pope. And the Pope didn't lecture at them, right? He, the, what he did was in each case, he listened and let that person just let out all of the the ideas and emotions in some cases that they had before he finally responded. And sometimes he would state in a very straightforward, gentle, non-preaching way what the church's teaching is, but much of the time it was almost pastoral counseling, Dennis, as you were saying, but it was in a group setting. And I thought that was really striking. But the thing that got me most was his listening. Listening was central to what he was doing in all of those encounters with those young people. And yet it was packaged as the Pope answers. Yes. Because that's the pre- that's our prejudice. It's like, I got to have an answer. You got to have an answer. Answer me. You got to say answer. Like fix this. it, man. Listening is highly underrated. What, Tom? The fix it, man. You gotta, yeah. Our problems can be fixed in a very quick way and an easy way, not demanding. Well, let's keep that story that Mark has told us in mind as we go through some of the other subjects that we'd like to cover today, because I think that's going to be an overriding theme that we're going to have to come back to from time to time. As I've said in the beginning, we've known for years that we have a declining attendance. There was a Pew, a PEW, Pew survey from 2009 that discussed it and tried to understand the reasons why. And for instance, and a little statistic, not a lot, but it's kind of a shocking one, that among those people who had left in the last 10 years prior to 2009, 65% had left because they stopped believing in Catholic teaching. A lot of people left because they said they 71% that they just simply drifted away from the church. These are reasons that we can get into. But let me ask a preliminary question, which is not related to Mark's story and the woman who came to him. But it's a preliminary question, which is sometimes asked by other people, and I think it would be important for us to address it. Why do we care? If people want to leave, why don't we just let them leave? If they don't want to worship with us, if they don't believe what we profess to believe, then aren't we better off like being with like-minded people, all agreeing on the same thing and getting along? Remember, even Pope Benedict had talked about maybe... There are benefits to a smaller church. Now, what he said has been misconstrued and reinterpreted and misstated. So I don't want to go down there and talk about, I don't want to go down that road to talk about Pope Benedict. It's just not helpful at all. But why do we care? Why don't we just consolidate a few churches and move on? What do you think? Tom, we're trying to listen. That's right, Willis. It's kind of too essential to why we're here, why we have our efforts to, uh, to reach out to people at the margin. It's our mission. This is what the good Lord told us, to go baptize, make disciples of all nations. It's the subject matter of the most of the documents from Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, the, we're the people of God. Everybody has a, a mission to reveal their relation with Christ. I mean, I think that's the evangelization that I have in mind for what we try and do. It's, it's not a soapbox evangelization where you stand on the corner. It's about revealing how God has acted in your life and to spread that. And it's good news. It's good news. Even in times when things are not going your way, it's a basic part of our formation. 
that we're here to spread the good word, to share our stories, and to welcome others on this journey of faith. And my optic doesn't do it. Closing, closing the doors and circling the wagon and coming up with one stereotype of people who all breathe the same oxygen and think the same way has never been the pattern in our church. But isn't uh-huh. it easier? Isn't that easier? Oh, it's a lot easier. And we could sell a lot of property and make a lot of money, too. A lot of churches. Yeah. Good art. I, I don't remember the passage where Jesus promised us easy. No, that's not. I yeah, got the wrong yeah. Bible. That's, uh, that's right. I, mean, I thought you signed up for uh, the cross. CLTM 6? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think this is the question of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Why are you having a party for him? So he spent all your money and did this and disgraced you and the family, and I'm out here busting my hump, and he shouldn't even be back in the house. I might having a party for him, right? This is the older brother. And this is the Pharisees that Jesus is positioning this towards. Like, who am I in this story? He's telling, and he's telling it to the Pharisees, as I recall. And it's like, you're the older brother. I keep the rules, and you're eating with sinners. And on the point of the prodigal son, which is arguably the, the top five or two or whatever parables that Jesus told, is really God, God can work with the loving father. He can work with the repentant scumbag son. He can't work with the prideful older brother. That's a short circuit right there in the grace loop. And he's positioning that. So that question about let him go, what do we need him for? That's the right kind of people, blah, blah, blah. That's the wrong mentality. That is not Jesus' mentality. And that is, that is not a, from a Christian point of view, it's not really a valid question. I'd be really surprised if there were even one person in the church who hasn't had a day where they struggled with something in the church, right? I mean, we every Sunday recite the creed together, and that is kind of the, the core of our faith. And then there's a lot more that goes with the Catholic faith, of course, in terms of teaching. But all of that, I think there are days where People have doubts and people have a a sense that something doesn't strike them as right, maybe. And yet, if everyone were to leave because they had a day where they doubted or they had a day where they felt that there was something they just couldn't abide by, well, we'd be an empty church completely, right? I think that we all bind together as a community in Christ, and Christ is what keeps us together. And if we were to have to be so strict as to say, well, if you don't believe in this aspect, then you, we don't even care if you show up. I think that we would just be an empty church. Well, despite having been the person who asked the question, I do think it is an invalid question because the whole point of being a disciple of Christ, is to go out and baptize all the nations. I mean, the whole point of Jesus's mission was to show us what love truly is. And love is unconditional, coming from God. And it's the love that we're asked to show to each other. So, so, when people start to leave because we have bored them, or hurt them, or marginalized them, or excluded them, or not seen them, then we have not loved. So it's not that we want to go get everybody to put money into the plate. It's because we want to fulfill our obligation to Jesus 
to walk as a disciple. That's the way I look at it. So I'm, I hate to be one of those people that asks a question and then they know what the answer is. I, and frankly, none of us know the answers to these questions. But we have, as I said in the beginning, our own responses having been well, deacons. that's a good lawyer. A good lawyer yeah. never asks a question that he doesn't know, know the answer, answer to. <laughs> yeah, no. It's a yeah. great point, though. At, at the ascension, we hear, right? Yeah. Go make disciples. Jesus doesn't say, go out and be a disciple and marginalize everybody else. <laughs> well, no, he does not. So anyway, so you've got that 2009 Pew survey, which to me just raised more questions than it answered. And you got the 2018 Pew survey, which was slightly skewed differently. It was why do pe- people stop going to mass? And missing from both surveys, and I don't know if it was completely missing. I read through them, and if I missed something, I wasn't going to take a test on this. So if I missed something, excuse me. But missing, I think, from that is the impact of the abuse scandal. And uh, because, for instance, in the 2018 survey, they practiced their faith in other ways. They can't find a church they like. They can't find a good homily. Homilies always come up in this. So we preachers always get the brunt for people getting mad and leaving. And maybe we should. But there's a, and some people, and 30%, by the way, in the 2018 survey, 30% said they don't believe in God. So that to me actually raises a hugely different problem. Okay. So that's not just whether we taught the catechism correctly or whether we emphasized the creed in the right spot. When somebody doesn't believe in God, that's a different question to me. I don't know. What do you guys think? Is that the same question? Is it just something else that has to be addressed by listening? Or? I don't think, I don't find the surveys, I find them interesting. I don't find them helpful because you would need to, going back to what I said about the lady that Mark was talking to, that, well, what are you saying? Like, I don't like the homilies. What don't you like about them? Are they too long? Well, we can start timing them and see, and I don't experience long homilies. I mean, once in a while, but... And long for the, our non-Catholic listeners uh, That's good. is yeah, good uh, point. 10 minutes, by the way, just so we're all clear. Most so, so then you would say that a 15 or even a 20-minute homily for a Catholic is pretty long. There'd be a revolt. They would come <laughs> out of the pews and drag you out of the pulpit. Uh, well, and, plus, and plus the pastor would, too, because we got another Mass in an hour. You've got to get the parking lot cleared out. You got to, The Methodists are getting to breakfast. You've got to get to the, the breakfast station there to have your little meal and everything. So there's many kids there's, play, a no wealth of, there's just such a wealth of knowledge among my podcast members here. I never, ever really considered trying to beat the Protestants to the diner. I, well, but you know well, what? But you have, well, it's because you have a Mass every hour, and they have a 1030 service. Right, and so if you don't leave right after the nine thirty, mm-hmm. you're incompetent. Those Methodists are going to take all those tables. There are I mean, some and Catholic closer communities, to the, though, right? Like huh? in American parishes that I've known, they will have long homilies. That go oh yeah, no, the Protestants, the Protestants, yeah, they'll have twenty minutes, forty <laughs> minutes, whatever. But my point is yeah. that it's not that it's a long homily, which most people think it is. But that's the problem. But my point would be, having been a high school teacher, I know. That you, when you're an educator, you learn things like your teaching style versus someone's learning style. Everybody doesn't have the same teaching and learning style. And the people that say, oh, I like this class, it's generally a matchup between that person's learning style and your teaching style, which means the teacher has to vary their approach to try to hit everybody. But again, 
you have the same problem in a parish. You're sitting there with people from nine months to 99 years, every education level, background, whatever, whatever shape they're in personally at the moment or whatever, and you've got to, you've got to talk to them. It's not even like you have luxury like, well, I'm talking to fourth graders. Well, that gives me a target. That gives me something to aim at, whatever. I'm, this is here comes everybody. So pity the homilist for a minute, if you could, that it, this is a very hard thing you're asking to do. And the homilist you like, someone else can't stand. For the reasons you like them, they don't like that person and the way they do it. And I, I mean, I could, I won't belabor this, but I mean, I've got actual stories of people within three seconds of each other praising a homilist and knocking the homilist and both of them citing the same technique or approach within like two, one minute of each other. And uh, you can't do it. So, so when you get to, well, I don't like the homilies. Well, what are you talking about? Is it the style? Is it the length? Or you got other things in the survey saying, my spiritual needs aren't being met. Okay. What kind of needs would those be? And people don't even know a lot of times in my experience. So you say you're in a parish, say, well, we're, Thinking of starting some kind of a program for the adults, a little adult formation or something. What do you think we should have? Everybody says Bible study. Because they don't even know what the rest of the menu could possibly be. They're just like, well, and you say, we already have Bible study. But they don't really know until they're shown or you give them a bunch of choices. So when people say things like, well, my needs aren't being met, I would like to know what those needs are, and then we can talk about it. So a lot of this stuff in the survey, is interesting, but I don't know if it's actionable. That's all I'm saying. Well, I think it's not without diving deeper into it. Don't actually disagree with you, but I think what you're saying is bringing us right back to Mark's story, and it's we have to ask them what they want, and we have to listen to what they need, right? Yeah, and I, out of self-criticism, I'd say the homilies that have been least effective for me, and I think probably this is a good just general lesson for all of us as homilists are those that are so theologically disconnected from anything real in people's lives that it may have been really interesting as a homilist to put together, but is completely meaningless to someone who is looking to hear some words of encouragement, comfort, direction from the homilist. Let me yeah, push back you... on that, just because, again, it makes the point of you can't win when you're the homeless. I agree with what you said. But on the other hand, there's someone sitting in that congregation, according to the survey, who's ready to leave because this is just, educated people can't believe this nonsense. This is not scientific. This is not, and for all, you know, and there are people, and I give you Bishop Barron as a prime example, who is a Baslin scholar, which is... He's a brainiac when he was a young man. He's a Baslin scholar. His approach is very heady, and he has a significant following. Now, I look at his stuff, and I say, well, is this going to really help Mrs. Murphy, Mark's point? And maybe not. But, boy, there are young people who are intellectual, who are head people. They eat this stuff up. This is exactly what they need to hear. I don't know if that's true even. You just can't win. You can't get them all in one, one homily. You really can't. Well, we're a big church. We're a big church and we're a big tent and we're going to have different types of homilists. And I would slightly disagree with you, Dennis. I think you can win. You just not. If there's a thousand people tell. in your church, if there's a thousand people in your church, you can win 
if 750 of them, 500 of them, even 300 of them, like your homilies, and as long as you don't give every homily, so that the other 650 people get to hear what they want. But it's a big church. But I'd like to get back to this, the abuse scandal. And I'm not that like I want to talk about it. If you're a 300 hitter, that's a good thing. Yeah. 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 Well, what is it? If you find 50 people, if you find 40 people, how about 30? I'll you save find? the city. <laughs> you're doing one of, one of my all-time favorite scripture passages in the Bible. When he's negotiating with God, I just love it. I love it. And I love the fact that God negotiates back. Okay, fine. Give me 10 people. <laughs> like, I, I love it. All right, I'm sorry. If I'm sh- On the abuse scandal, I think it's one of those things where the church addresses it or thinks it has, but people feel that it really hasn't been addressed enough. And then it kind of gets goes off the front page of the paper. And then a new report comes out, and it really, I think the church is to realize that this issue isn't going away, right? Now, how we deal with it in terms of people feeling disconnected from the church as a result, I think that's a real challenge. That, I think that, we worked on the policy piece of it. Yeah, that's the question I'm asking. We yeah. all know, I, I think we all know, I know at least two of us here, I don't want to speak for anybody else. I'm not speaking for the one I know about, have personal situations that w- we know people who have been touched by the scandal. And when somebody, a close friend, a close family member, comes to me and says, I will never go back in a Catholic church, based on what I know, I don't want to argue with them. So how do we address it? How do we address it? How can I be a good Paulist deacon affiliate and address that without saying goodbye, see you later, I get it? And I think there's a distinction between I understand and I agree and I get it. I mean, I'm into this up to my eyeballs. I've invested a lot in this organization, more than the person talking to me. And I know more that's wrong with this organization than they have any idea of. However, having said that, are you going to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Like Mark said, we have now policies in place to, to help prevent it. I'm not talking about how to fix it. I'm not talking about how to explain it. I'm not talking about how to excuse it. I'm saying, what is our response to people who have been hurt by it? How do we, they're on the threshold and they're on their way out. What do we well, do? I think I a lot of people, it's, that haven't even been touched by it or just outraged by it, and rightly so, let me absolutely. add, rightly yeah, absolutely. so. I'm mm-hmm. My point was I'm more outraged than they are. But then <laughs> how do we compare or talk about, well, is the church doing something? Should you have faith? Have they seen the light? Now, it's worse because we are held to a higher standard, and we should be. We absolutely should be, and we failed. And I think they should have put bishops in jail. I mean, personally, I'm not defending this, but I'm saying the tools you would normally have to talk to someone about this, about anything, compare, contrast, well, is the church safe? Well, no one's safe completely. This could happen anywhere, anytime. But with the, we all know with the training we have to go through all the time, whether it's a catechist, a janitor, anyone who has anything to do with the church, everybody's told what to look for, but yeah, it's I out think, there. I think you're right. There are some people who kind of come to that false conclusion that, well, because of this group of priests and religious and deacons who have violated that trust 
that they're all the same. They paint everyone with the same brush. But at the same time, those people have some pretty deep feelings of disgust about the cases that they have read about. And it's so disturbing to them. And rightfully so, as we've said, right? I mean, these stories are just atrocious, shocking, and bewildering that it's hard to know how to say anything that could help other than just listen and acknowledge that, yes, this was wrong, and we're trying to address it. All right. A while ago, we had Father Frank Desiderio, and we were talking about his work with forgiveness. And I just remember one of the things he said from a conversation he had with another brother priest of his who was actively engaged in healing. He says, the, the biggest obstacle to healing, a healing ministry, is the lack of forgiveness. And that whole thing. So, you know, how you would present that to the victim. And I speak from experience because I had an employee who was a victim. And it, same thing held true. He just sat there. I just sat there and listened. Because even making a recommendation for forgiveness is a stretch. It's, you, you just have to be there, I think. It's, it's Mary at the foot of the cross. What can you say? What can you do? You have to just be there. I find that to be operative for doing a lot of funerals and wakes for people who've lost their loved ones. You hear the stories of, oh, well, he's in a better place or she's in a better place and the pain is gone. Yeah. But that in itself is a problem. So, yeah, I think Father Frank had words of wisdom with that. It's forgiveness, and if you are able to bring a person around to that, I think you get them set a step in the right direction. And forgiveness is really a difficult thing to get to. That's going to take forever with this debacle we're involved in. I mean, it really is. But I think what I was trying to say is not even on the level of forgiveness it's on the level of, I don't think you're in that much danger. Like the idea that, well, I'm not going back. I'm not bringing my kids there or whatever. It reminds me of the people up north saying, oh, you live in Florida. What about the alligators? I have people that are obsessed with alligators. And it's like, yeah, you see them. They're around. They're not, I don't live in a swamp. I mean, like there's very little da- danger of you. It is possible, but it's not like I'm reading in the paper all the time or seeing people being eaten by alligators. And it's the same thing here. You're probably as safe in a Catholic church these days as any place else and safer than many other places. It's just, so my thing would be not forgiveness, so hopefully we get to that, but just reduce the fear. Now, the outrage I don't intend to reduce. You should be outraged. I would have a contest to see if I'm more outraged or you are. Just but you don't have to be afraid, like like we've done nothing, and this is just running amok. And Mark just had, Mark, you just had a, a report released in Baltimore, your neck of the woods. And again, a lot of this stuff happened 50, 60 years ago. But you don't know that. You see it on the news. It's like, well, this is going on today. And I think people are confused. It's like, yeah, no, they're not, they're not looking the other way today. Not around here, anyway. I think you're right about the lack of connection with the time frame, but it doesn't take away the outrage that it happened, right? And the idea that in some of those cases, if you've read the report, are pretty atrocious and concentrations of abuse in the same parish are just outrageous. It refreshes that constant refreshing, right, of memory of this uh, abuse crisis that 
has been dominant in the news for the last two decades plus. And so it, in a way, it doesn't matter that it was a long time ago. And occasionally still stories come up of more recent abuse cases. So I understand what you're saying, Dennis, but it doesn't take away, right, people's feeling right. of Oh, no. Right. Yeah. This is a reason, and I think it's a major reason. It's my personal opinion. It's a major reason for people who have stopped going to Mass and or leaving the church. And so since we are in the business of reaching out to those on the margins and those who are on the threshold and on the door going out, is there anything we can do? Listen to this conversation. It's tough. I don't know. We're, none of us have an answer for what we can do other than to be available, to listen, to there's some practical considerations that Dennis talked about. I mean, things have changed. It is safer now. But if I'm on the other side, if I'm the one who's leaving, all I would say is, yeah, you say it is. But I knew whoever expected this to happen. So there, I don't think there is a good answer other than to just keep preaching the gospel. I think and that's accompaniment, only, right? Accompaniment, accompaniment, accompaniment. And maybe, maybe we could use this time right now to start to wrap this up a little bit and talk about that. What are our answers? We've had a nice discussion. We've had some yelling back and forth, but we haven't had any, I don't think we've had any conclusions. Dennis, do you have anything that you've taken from this that you would put together on this? Well, I think that talked about a lot of things. We talked about the scandal, which is just just a monstrosity and all that. We talked about that. We also talked about the surveys and the emptying out of the pews and the reasons people give and that we really do need to dig deeper into each of these responses to really begin to address them because they're just, in my mind, they're just too vague. Like, I did, we don't know what they mean. It's, it points in a direction, but it doesn't really tell you what, what could be done. But I think that at the end of the day, all this stuff is, says to me, reminds me of church history. People are freaking out. We're losing the franchise. We're not this. We're closing churches. We're not that. And again, you're not telling me anything or any of the other three of us here, that four of us here, that, that we're not living in the midst of, in the pain of, and answering the questions for, we know how bad this is. But we know from history that the one thing that is constant is a shifting mission field. Now, we have been given, as Drew summed up so well, the mission by Jesus to go out and to preach the gospel to every creature, according to Mark's gospel. And the mission field is never a choice. It's like golf. You got to play the ball where it lies. You don't get to pick it up and put it in a better spot in the fairway. You're under the trees. You got to get it. You haven't up. played with me lately, but okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> got the video. But your point, Dennis, I apologize. Your point is right now you're driving it down the middle of the fairway. Please continue. Yeah. So we, we never get to choose. You got to play it where it lies. You never get to choose your mission field. So we start off with a group of, of Jews in Jerusalem in an upper room. And then we go out from there, and we, we do what we can. We understand this. It's our home turf here in Jerusalem and Palestine. Next thing, the mission is going out to the Greco-Roman world, to the Greek and the Roman world. Well, that's another whole smoke. we gotta, we got to write the Gospels differently than Matthew's got with all his concerns for the prophets and all kinds of Jewish issues, questions that Jewish Christians had, 
And these Greeks and Romans don't even know who Moses is. And they might have, so you, you approach it in a different way. And then the next thing you know, we got the barbarians, which is the rest of Europe today. Most of us are former barbarians, I guess. And they're coming over the borders. And we, there's a whole different approach the church takes to bringing the gospel to them. And on in our own days to Africa, Asia, all the Americas, all that stuff. And so we are constantly having being presented with a new mission field. And so this is just another one. That's all I'm saying. Jesus said, read the signs of the times, and this would be it. We are in a new situation, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be a painful transition. But no one has ever turned the clock back. And I just don't understand these people that, that want to, let's go back to whatever it is, because it's just never been done. So I just think that we have to take the mission and adapt to how we're going to present it in a new situation, and that may include less churches or less influence, or we've done it before. And the church has been buried many times, and we keep coming back because it's the Holy Spirit. It's not it's us. The whole, we spent, the, we spent yeah. our time here talking about how we can screw really? this up <laughs> three ways to Sunday. This organization, I, I cannot explain to you why it's still viable and still 1.2 billion viable. A huge organization, and it's working, and it does it does more good than we never talk about that either. All the hospitals and schools and orphanages and the jungles and the places no one cares. I mean, homeless shelters, the feeding whatever, of the yeah. poor. Yeah, look at this stuff on the border right now. As we do this, we're doing all the stuff on the border, and we got a big. We surge. got Sister Liz down there. You got everybody down there, and all they're doing is Catholic charities. This Catholic yeah. charities that Sister So and So Father. That's not an accident. I mean, this is what we do. We do a lot of good, and you know. The no, world that, is always even on a small scale, right? Not just huh? the big Catholic charities things that people tend to forget about that are so impactful around the world and in our own nation, but locally in our community, we're the place that people go to when they grieve, right? We have our rituals for death and for life, from baptism, right, to the grave. We're there. Even if people go away for a time, they need us ultimately because we're a place where that need for a place to go for a ritual in their lives to deal with what they're, they're dealing with, that's what we provide for them. Community. I think of 9-11 when, you know, that tragedy hit. We're hardwired to, to find solace, and it's in the church that that offers it and how people came back for those years after there and then drifted away again. I remember being down at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And when I was being discharged, there was a little sign on the wall, a little ditto. Remember those dittos that they had to do with it? And it said, God and the soldier are adored in time of danger, not before. When a danger is done and all things righted, God is forgotten and the soldier slighted. And Back in the Vietnam days, that was pretty popular, going out from Fort Knox, Kentucky, back into the civilian world. The abuse that was going on with that, right? And look, 50 years later, 40 years later, everybody's a hero. And, but the one that's forgotten now continues to be God. <laughs> so we're always going to cut God out of the picture. Because we're created in our, God's created in our image and likeness. We got the story backwards. Yeah, I think the bottom line is that there are people like you, three deacons, who are always going to be here, who keep the church moving because you practice God's presence and you 
you show God to those people who are hurting and who are not seeing, who are marginalized and who are screwed up because of the church. We're here and we're not going anywhere. Right? Right. And we want this to work for everybody else as well as it's worked for us. I mean, that's, we're not getting any money out of this. Oh, yeah. I've been meaning to talk to my pastor about that. Yeah, I know, huh? (laughs) And on that note, and on that note, Drew, you get the third collection. There you go. Yes. It's time for us to say goodbye. It's been great to see you all. Thank you guys. I believe. Thanks for letting me join in. Nice to see you, Mark. Thanks for bringing yourself to us, Mark. Thanks. And so we turn to the good Lord who has called us into service to do his work among his people. And we ask for his blessings and his continued grace and guidance, and especially some healing power to all those who have feel abused or hurt by the church, by its members, its clergy, that God will bring his abundant healing power and compassion into their lives and awaken within them a new spirit to rejoin and and come into his presence. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Paul. Special thanks to El Jefe, Paul Snatchko, and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, and of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.